step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio.
Hello and good morning. Bonjour, guten Morgen, and buongiorno, guys and dolls. It is me, your hostess, Sandra London of livinggrind.com, broadcasting for you in the early booty morning, booty early morning, one of these things, <laughs> uh, live from Los Angeles, California, um, at the sunny beaches. Well, the sun's not out, but it will be soon. Uh, yeah, this is like a rare broadcast for me to broadcast this early. Um or whatever, but yes, I decided to go ahead and do so um, because I know I have uh, failed to do my, like, normal Sunday thing, like, the past couple Sundays, and I miss my show, I miss broadcasting, Um, my sleep schedule is a bit off, so I figured why not take advantage of that, (laughs) yes, and yeah, there you are, that is why I'm here, and I hope you all are doing well. And, uh, yes, for this morning, I have to keep reminding myself it's morning, not evening. (laughs) For this morning, um, I decided to go ahead and uh, play some of my recordings for you that I've done for a couple different uh, classic works of literature (laughs) um, that are in the public domain. Uh, Most of these I recorded on a cell phone, and then I spent, like, the past few several minutes before the show, uh, converting them into uh, web-capable uh, file formats uh, for your listening pleasure. And a lot of them were read just, like, off the cuff. Like, I just turned on, like, a push re- record and just spoke. <laughs> so um, if irregularities in, like, the intonation and dramatic pauses, je m'excuse, please excuse me, but I just started reading and I don't know, I thought perhaps you might like to hear some of these, um, and we will see how this goes, but um, let's start out with, I'm trying to like put some order in here, so I decided to go ahead and do it in uh, alphabetical order, there you are, so I will start with, wait, where'd you go? <laughs> uh, the Game by Jack London, and it's the first couple pages of that, and I hope you will enjoy um, you're listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio, and I'm your host, Sandra London of LivingGrind.com. Here you are, The Game by Jack London. The Game by Jack London, Chapter 1. Many patterns of carpet lay rolled out before them on the floor. Two of Brussels showed the beginning of their quest, and its ending in that direction, while a score of ingrains lured their eyes and prolonged the debate between desire pocketbook. The head of the department did them the honor of waiting upon them himself, or did Joe the honor, as she well knew, for she had noted the open-mouthed awe of the elevator boy who brought them up, nor had she been blind to the marked respect shown Joe by the urchins and groups of young fellows on corners when she walked with him in their own neighborhood down at the west end of the town. But the head of the department was called away to the telephone, and in her mind the splendid promise of the carpets and the irk of the pocketbook were thrust aside by a greater doubt and anxiety. But I don't see what you find to like in it, Joe. 
she said softly, the note of insistence in her words betraying recent and unsatisfactory discussion. For a fleeting moment, a shadow darkened his boyish face to be replaced by the glow of tenderness. He was only a boy, as she was only a girl, two young things on the threshold of life, house renting and buying carpets together. What's the good of worrying, he questioned. It's the last go, the very last. He smiled at her, but she saw on his lips the unconscious and all that breathed sigh of renunciation and with the instinctive monopoly of woman for her mate. She feared this thing she did not understand and which gripped his life so strongly. You know, the go with O'Neill cleared the last payment on Mother's house, he went on, and that's off my mind. Now, this last with Ponta will give me a hundred dollars in a bank, and even hundred. That's the purse for you and me to start on. And this egg. She disregarded the money appeal. But you like it, this this game, you call it. Why? He lacked speech expression. He expressed himself with his hands, at his work, and with his body and the play of his muscles in the squared ring. But to tell with his own lips the charm of the squared ring was beyond him. Yet he essayed, and haltingly at first, to express what he felt and analyzed when playing the game at the supreme summit of existence. All I know, Genevieve, is that you feel good in the ring when you've got the man where you want him, when he's had a punch up both sleeves waiting for you and you've never given, given him an opening to land him, when you've landed your own little punch and he's going groggy and holding on and the referee's dragging him off so you can go in and finish him and all the house is shouting and tearing itself loose and you know you're the best man and that you played him fair and won him out because you're the best man, I tell you. He ceased brokenly, alarmed by his own volubility and by Genevieve's look of alarm. As he talked, she had watched his face while fear dawned in her own. As he described the moment of moments to her, on his inward vision were lined the tottering man, the lights, the shouting house, and he swept out and away from her on this tide of life that was beyond her comprehension, menacing, irresistible, making her love pitiful and weak. The Joe she knew receded, faded, became lost. The fresh, boyish face was gone. The tenderness of the eyes, the sweetness of the mouth with its curves and pictured corners, it was a man's face she saw, a face of steel, tense and immobile, a mouth of steel, the lips like the jaws of a trap, eyes of steel, dilated and tense, and the light in them and the glitter or the light and glitter of steel. The face of a man, and she had known only his boy face. This face she did not know at all. And yet... While it frightened her, she was vaguely stirred with pride in him. His masculinity, the masculinity of the fighting male, made its inevitable appeal to her, a female, molded by all her heredity to seek out the strong man for mate and to lean against the wall of his strength. 
she did not understand this force of his being that rose mightier than her love and laid its compulsion upon him. And yet, in her woman's heart, she was aware of the sweet pang which told her that for her sake, for love's own sake, he had surrendered to her, abandoned all that portion of his life, and that this one last fight would never fight again. Mrs. Silverstein doesn't like prize fighting, she said. She's down on it, and she knows something, too. He smiled indulgently, concealing a hurt and not altogether new at her persistent and appreciation of this side of his nature and life, in which he took the greatest pride. It was to him power and achievement, earned by his own effort and hard work. And in the moment when he had offered himself and all that he was to Genevieve, it was this and this alone that he was proudly conscious of laying at her feet. It was the merit of work performed, a garden of manhood finer and greater than any other man could offer, and it had been to him his justification and right to possess her. And she had not understood it then, as she did not understand it now, and he might well have wondered what else she found in him to make him worthy. Mrs. Silverstein is a dub and a softy and a knocker, he said good-humoredly. What's she know about such things, anyway? I tell you, it is good and healthy, too. This last is an afterthought. Look at me. I tell you, I have to live clean to be in condition like this. I live cleaner than she does, or her old man, or anybody you know. Baths, rub-downs, exercise, regular hours good food, and no making a pig of myself, no drinking, no smoking, nothing that'll hurt me. Why, I live cleaner than you, Genevieve. Honest, I do, he hastened to add at, at sight of her shocked face. I don't mean water and soap, but look there. His hand closed reverently but firmly on her arm. Soft. You're all soft, all over. Not like mine. Here, feel this. He pressed the ends of her fingers into his hard arm muscles until she winced from the hurt. Hard all over, just like that, he went on. Now that's what I call clean. Every bit of flesh and blood and muscle is clean right down to the bones. And they're clean, too. No soap and water only on the skin, but clean all the way in. I tell you, it feels clean. It knows it's clean itself. When I wake up in the morning and go to work, every drop of blood and bit of meat is shouting right out that it is clean. Oh, I tell you. He paused with swift awkwardness, again confounded by his unwanted flow of speech. Never in his life had he been stirred to such utterance, and never in his life had there been cause to be so stirred. For it was the game that had been questioned, its verity and worth, the game itself the biggest thing in the world, or what had been the biggest thing in the world, until that chance afternoon and that chance purchase in Silverstein's candy store when Genevieve limbed suddenly, colossal in his life, overshadowing all other things. He was beginning to see, though vaguely, the sharp conflict between woman and career, between a man's work in the world and a woman's need of the man. But he was not capable of generalization. He saw only the antagonism between the concrete flesh-and-blood Genevieve and the great, abstract, living game. Each resented the other. 
Each claimed him. He was torn with the strife and yet drifted helpless on the currents of their contention. Domo arigato. Evermore to be 
most beloved epic novel, Gone with the Wind, by Margaret Mitchell. Part 1, Chapter 1 Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom realized it when caught by her charm, as the Charlton twins were. In her face were too sharply blended the delicate features of her mother, a coast aristocrat of French descent, and the heavy ones of her florid Irish father. But it was an arresting face, pointed of chin, square of jaw. Her eyes were pale green, without a touch of hazel, starred with bristly black lashes and slightly tilted at the ends. 
Above them, her thick black brows slanted upward, cutting a startling oblique line in her magnolia-white skin. That skin, so prized by southern women, and so carefully guarded with bonnets, veils, and mittens against hot Georgia suns. Seated with Stuart and Brent Tarleton in the cool shade of the porch of Tara, her father's plantation, that bright April afternoon of 1861, she made a pretty picture. Her new green flowered muslin dress spread its twelve yards of billowing material over her hoops and exactly matched the flat-heeled green Morocco slippers her father had recently bought her from Atlanta. The dress set off to perfection, the 17-inch waist, the smallest in three counties, and a tightly fitting basque showed breasts well matured for her 16 years. But for all the modesty of her spreading skirts, the demureness of hair netted smoothly into a chignon, and the quietness of small, white hands folded in her lap, her true self was poorly concealed. The green eyes and the carefully sweet face were turbulent, willful, lusty with life, distinctly at variance with her decorous demeanor. Her manners had been imposed upon her by her mother's gentle admonitions and the sterner discipline of her mammy. Her eyes were her own. On either side of her, the twins lounged easily in their chairs, squinting at the sunlight through tall, mint-garnished glasses as they laughed and talked. Their long legs booted to the knee and thick with saddle muscles crossed negligently. Nineteen years old, six feet two inches tall, long of bone and hard of muscle, with sunburned faces and deep auburn hair, their eyes merry and arrogant, their bodies clothed in identical blue coats, and mustard-colored breeches. They're as much alike as two bowls of cotton. Outside, the late afternoon sun slanted down in the yard, throwing into gleaming brightness the dogwood trees that were solid masses of white blossoms against the background of new green. The twins' horses were hitched in the driveway, big animals, red as their master's hair, and around the horses' legs quarreled the pack of lean, nervous possum hounds that accompanied Stuart and Brent wherever they went. A little aloof, as became an aristocrat, lay a black-spotted carriage dog, muzzle on paws, patiently waiting for the boys to go home to supper. Between the hounds and the horses and the twins, there was a kinship deeper than that of their constant companionship. They were all healthy, thoughtless young animals, sleek, graceful, high-spirited, the boys as meddlesome as the horses they rode, meddlesome and dangerous, but withal sweet-tempered to those who knew how to handle them. Although born to the ease of plantation life, waited on hand and foot since infancy, the faces of the three on the porch were neither slack nor soft. They had the vigor and alertness of country people who have spent all their lives in the open and troubled their heads very little with dull things and books. Life in the North Georgia County of Clayton was still new and, 
according to the standards of Augusta, Savannah, and Charleston. A little crude. The more sedate and older sections of the South looked down their noses at the upcountry Georgians, but here in North Georgia, a lack of the niceties of classical education carried no shame, provided a man was smart in the things that mattered. And raising good cotton, riding well, shooting straight, dancing lightly, squiring the ladies with elegance, and carrying one's liquor like a gentleman were the things that mattered. And these accomplishments, the twins excelled, and they were equally outstanding in their notorious inability to learn anything contained between the covers of books. Their family had more money, more horses, more slaves than anyone else in the county, but the boys had less grammar than most of their poor cracker neighbors. It was for this precise reason that Stuart and Brent were idling on the porch of Tara this April afternoon. They had just been expelled from the University of Georgia, the fourth university that had thrown them out in two years. And their older brothers, Tom and Boyd, had come home with them because they refused to remain at an institution where the twins were not welcome. Stuart and Brent considered their latest expulsion a fine joke, and Scarlett, who had not willingly opened a book since leaving the Fayetteville Female Academy the year before, thought it just as amusing as they did. I know you two don't care about being expelled, or, or Tom either, but what about Boyd? He's he's kind of set on getting an education, and you two have pulled him out of the University of Virginia, and Alabama, and South Carolina, and now Georgia. He'll never get finished at this rate. Oh, he can read law and judge Parmalee's office over in Fayetteville. Besides, it doesn't matter much. We'd have had to come home before the term was out anyway. Why? The war, Goose. The war is going to start any day. And you don't suppose any of us would stay in college with the war going on, do you? You know there isn't going to be any war. It's all just talk. Why, Ashley Wilkes and his fathers hold pod just last week about that. That our commissioners in Washington would come to... to an amicable agreement with Mr. Lincoln about the Confederacy. And anyway, the Yankees are too scared of us to fight. There won't be any war, and I'm tired of hearing of it. Not going to be any war? Why, honey, of course there's going to be a war. The Yankees may be scared of us, but after the way General Beauregard shelled them out of Fort Sumter the day before yesterday, they'll have to fight or stand branded as cowards, before the whole world. Why, the Confederacy... If you say war just once more, I'll go in the house and shut the door. I've never gotten so tired of any one word in my life as war, unless it's secession. Pa talks war morning, noon, and night, and all the gentlemen who come to see him about that Shout about Fort Sumter and states' rights and Abe Lincoln until I get so bored I could scream. And that's all the boys talk about, too, that that and their old troop. There hasn't been any fun at any party this spring because boys can't talk about anything else. I'm mighty glad Georgia waited till after Christmas before it seceded, or it would have ruined the Christmas parties, too. If you say war again, I'll go in the house. 
She meant what she said, for she could never long endure any conversation of which she was not the chief subject. But she smiled when she spoke, consciously deepening her dimple and fluttering her bristly black lashes as swiftly as butterflies' wings. The boys were enchanted, as she had intended them to be, and they hastened to apologize for boring her. They thought none the less of her for her lack of interest. Indeed, they thought more. War was men's business, not ladies, and they took her attitude as evidence of her femininity. Having maneuvered them away from the boring subject of war, she went back with interest to their immediate situation. What did your mother say about you two being expelled again? The boys looked uncomfortable, recalling their mother's conduct three months ago when they had come home by request from the University of Georgia. Well, said Stuart, she hasn't had a chance to say anything yet. Tom and us left home early this morning before she got up, and Tom's laying out over at the fountain, Fontaine's while we came over here. Didn't she say anything when you got home last night? Uh, we were in luck last night. Just before we got home, that new stallion Ma got in Kentucky last month was brought in, and the place was in a stew. The big brute, he's a grand horse, Scarlet. You must tell your pa to come over and see him right away. He'd already bitten a hunk out of his groom on the way down here, and he'd trampled two of Ma's darkies who met the train at jo- Jonesboro. And just before we got home, he'd about kicked the stable down and half-killed Strawberry, Ma's old stallion. When we got home, Ma was out in the stable with a sack full of sugar, smoothing him down and doing it mighty well, too. The darkies were hanging from the rafters, Popeye. They were so scared. But Ma was talking to the horse like he was, he was folks, and he was eating out of her hand. There ain't nobody like Ma with a horse. And when she saw us, she said, In heaven's name, what are you fool doing home again? You're worse than the plagues of Egypt. <laughs> and then the horse began snorting and rearing, and she said, Get out of here. Can't you see he's nervous, the big darling? I'll tend to you four in the morning. So we went to bed, and this morning we got away before she could catch us and let, left Boyd to handle her. Well, do you suppose she'll hit Boyd? Scarlet, like the rest of the county, could never get used to the way small Miss Charlton bullied her grown sons and laid her riding crop on their backs if the occasion seemed to warrant it. Beatrice Charlton was a busy woman, having on her hands not only a large cotton plantation, a hundred Negroes and eight children, but the largest horse-spring farm in the state as well. She was hot-tempered and easily plagued by the frequent scrapes of her four sons, and while no one was permitted to whip a horse or a slave, she felt that a lick now and then didn't do the boys any harm. Oh, of course she won't hit Boyd. She never did beat Boyd much because he's the oldest, and besides, he's the runt of the litter. That's why we left him at home to explain things to her. God Almighty, Ma to stop licking us. We're 19 years old and Tom's 21. She acts like we're six years old. Will your mother ride the new horse to the Wilkes uh, barbecue tomorrow? She wants to, but Pa says he's too dangerous. And anyway, the girls won't let her. They said they were going to have her go to one party, at least like a lady. Ride in the carriage. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. It's rained nearly every day for a week. There's nothing worse than a barbecue turned into an indoor picnic. Oh, it'll be clear tomorrow and hot as June. Look at that sunset. I never saw one redder. You can always tell weather by sunsets.
And we're back. You're listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio. Um, very early in the morning on Tuesday, the 12th day of May in the year 2015. With your host, Sandra London of LiveAndGrind.com. You just heard I. <laughs> you just heard uh, Gone with the Wind uh, on the first few pages of Chapter One of um, one of the most famous novels of all time. And you heard Cuaro by Yohimbo. Uh, and next up, we have the intro to Frankenstein, written by Mary Shelley, uh, recorded by yours truly, Sandra London of LivingGrind.com. And we are... Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Letter 1. St. Petersburg. December 11th. To Mrs. Seville, England. You will rejoice to hear that no disaster has accompanied the commencement of an enterprise which you have regarded with such evil forebodings. I arrived here yesterday. My first task is to assure my dear sister of my welfare and increasing confidence in the success of my undertaking. I am already far north of London, and as I walk in the streets of Petersburg, I feel a cold northern breeze play upon my cheeks, which braces my nerves and fills me with delight. Do you understand this feeling, this breeze, which has traveled from the regions towards which I am advancing, gives me a foretaste of those icy climes? And spirited by this wind of promise, my daydreams become more fervent and vivid. I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation. It ever presents itself to my imagination as the region of beauty and delight. There, Margaret, the sun is forever visible, its broad disk just skirting the horizon and diffusing a perpetual splendor. There, for with your leave, my sister, I will put some trust in proceeding navigators. There, snow and frost are banished. And sailing over a calm sea, we may be wafted to a land surpassing in wonders and in beauty every region hitherto discovered on the habitable globe. Its productions and features may be without example, as the phenomena of the heavenly bodies undoubtedly are in those undiscovered solitudes. What may not be expected in a country of eternal light? I may there discover the wondrous power which attracts the needle and may regulate a thousand celestial observations that require only this voyage to render their steaming eccentricities consistent forever. I shall satiate my ardent curiosity with the sight of a part of the world never before visited. I may tread a land never before imprinted by the foot of man. These are my enticements, and they are sufficient to conquer all fear of danger or death and to induce me to commence this laborious voyage with the joy a child feels when he embarks in a little boat with his holiday mates on an expedition of discovery of his native river. But supposing all these conjectures to be false, you cannot contest the inestimable benefit which I shall confer on all mankind the last generation by discovering a passage near the pole to those countries 
to reach which at present so many months are requisite, or by ascertaining the secret of the magnet, which, if at all possible, can only be effected by an undertaking such as mine. These reflections have dispelled the agitation with which I began my letter, and I feel my heart glow with an enthusiasm which elevates me to heaven. For nothing contributes so much to tranquilize the mind as a steady purpose, a point on which the soul may fix its intellectual eye. This expedition has been the favorite dream of my early years. I have read with ardor the accounts of the various voyages which have been made in the prospect of arriving at the North Pacific Ocean through the seas which surround the Pole. You may remember that a history of all the voyages made for purposes of discovery composed the whole of our good Uncle Thomas library. My education was neglected, yet I was passionately fond of reading. These volumes were my study day and night, and my familiarity with them increased that regret which I had felt as a child on learning that my father's dying injunction had forbidden my uncle to allow me to embark in a seafaring life. These visions faded when I perused, for the first time, those poets whose effusions entranced my soul and lifted it to heaven. I also became a poet and, for one year, lived in a paradise of my own creation. I imagined that I also might obtain a niche in the temple where the names of Homer and Shakespeare are consecrated. You are well acquainted with my failure and how heavily I bore the disappointment. But just at that time, I inherited the fortune of my cousin, and my thoughts were turned into the channel of their earlier bent. Six years have passed since I resolved on my present undertaking. I can, even now, remember the hour from which I dedicated myself to this great enterprise. I commenced by inuring my body to hardship. I accompanied the whale fishers on several expeditions to the North Sea, I voluntarily endured cold, famine, thirst, and want of sleep. I often worked harder than the common sailors during the day and devoted my nights to the study of mathematics, the theory of medicine, and those branches of physical science from which a a naval adventurer might derive the greatest practical advantage. Twice I actually hired myself as an undermate in a Greenland whaler and acquitted myself to admiration. I must own I felt a little proud when my captain offered me the second dignity in the vessel and entreated me to remain with the greatest earnestness, so valuable did he consider my services. And now, dear Margaret, do I not deserve to accomplish some great purpose? My life might have been passed in ease and luxury, but I preferred glory to every enticement that wealth placed in my path. Oh, that's same that some encouraging voice would answer in the affirmative. My courage and my resolution is firm, but my hopes fluctuate and my spirits are often depressed. I'm about to proceed on a long and difficult voyage, the emergencies of which will demand all my fortitude. I'm required not only to raise the spirits of others, but sometimes to sustain my own when theirs are failing. This is the most favorable period for traveling in Russia. They fly quickly over the snow in their sledges. The motion is pleasant and, in my opinion, far more agreeable than that of an English stagecoach. 
The cold is not excessive. If you are wrapped in furs, a dress, which I have already adopted, for there is a great difference between walking the deck and remaining seated motionless for hours when no exercise prevents the blood from actually freezing in your veins. I have no ambition to Jose, or I have no ambition to lose my life on the post road between St. Petersburg and Archangel. I shall depart for the latter town in a fortnight or three weeks. And my intention is to hire a ship there, which can easily be done by paying the insurance for the owner, and to engage as many sailors as I think necessary among those who are accustomed to the whale fishing. I do not intend to sail until the month of June, and when shall I return? Ah, dear sister, how can I answer this question? If I succeed, many, many months, perhaps years, will pass before you and I may meet if I fail, you will see me again soon, or never. Farewell, my dear, excellent Margaret. Heaven shower down blessings on you and save me, that I may again and again testify my gratitude for all your love and kindness. Your affectionate brother, R. Walton. They got straight to
best brought out in the light. It's the best brought out in the light. And we're back. You're listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio, and I'm your hostess, Sandra London of LiveAndGrind.com. Uh, you just heard Frankenstein, uh, written by Mary Shelley, the very beginning. It's an intro letter that begins the novel, um, uh, recorded by yours truly, Sandra London of LiveAndGrind.com, and you heard the song Taxidermy by Kersey Williams. And uh, without further ado, I will now play a... Where did it go? Huh. Um, Jekyll and Hyde, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, I actually did two recordings of this just a few hours ago. Wait, we are what? We are 5 a.m. ish right now. I would say this is about 9, 9.30 ish p.m. Monday evening, yesterday. Um, uh, what do you call it? And yeah, so. Oh, what do you call it? So I'm doing the reading thing, and, like, I'm all, all right, uh, there's two, there's the narrative part, and then there's, like, two male characters, Mr. Utterson and um, um, Richard, uh, Jesus, <laughs> Richard uh, Enfield, there you are. Um, and so I was like, okay, so to differentiate those two characters plus my own narrative voice, what am I going to do? So I think I uploaded the first one, and the first one is raw, as are um, the first three stories that you heard. Um, And so I don't know how it is. I hope you like it. I don't know, but I tried to differentiate. You'll see what I mean when you listen to it. But I actually did a second recording, which I think was a bit better and a bit louder, because once I tried to do different accents to distinguish the voices, for some reason I... I must have been, like, hesitant or something because then it got a bit lower. But who knows? We shall see how it goes, if, if it's audible and awesome or whatever. But there is also a second version, which I did about half an hour or so after the first. <sighs> Be that as it may, here you are. Here's the, uh, the raw um, whatever version of a Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, written by Robert Louis Stevenson and recorded by yours truly, Sandra London of livinggrind.com. <laughs> Here you are. This is a recording of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written by Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, recorded by yours truly, Sandra London, <laughs> aka JNH. Alrighty, uh, let's see. Yeah. <clears throat> Story of the door. Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, was a man of rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile, cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings, and when the wine was to his taste, something eminently human beaconed from his eye, something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only in these silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the acts of his life. He was austere with himself, drank gin when he was alone to mortify a taste for vintages, 
and though he enjoyed the theater, had not crossed the doors of one for 20 years. But he had an approved tolerance for others, sometimes wondering, almost with envy, at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds, and in any extremity inclined to help rather than to reprove. I incline to Cain's heresy, he used to say quaintly. I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. In this character, it was frequently his fortune to be the last reputable acquaintance and the last good influence in the lives of downgoing men. And such as these, so long as they came about his chambers, he never made he never marked a shade of change in his demeanor. No doubt the feat was easy to Mr. Utterson, for he was undemonstrative at best, and even his friendship seemed to be founded in a similarly a similar catholicity of good nature. It is the mark of a modest man to accept his friendly circle ready-made from the hands of opportunity. And that was the lawyer's way. His friends were those of his own blood or those whom he had known the longest. His affections, like ivy, were the growth of time. They implied no aptness in the object. Hence, no doubt the bonds that united him to Mr. Richard Onfield, his distant kinsman, the well-known man about town. It was a nut to crack for many, what these two could see in each other or what subject they could find in common. It was reported by those who encountered them in their Sunday walks that they said nothing, looked singularly dull, and would hail with obvious relief the appearance of a friend. For all that, the two men put the greatest store by these excursions, counted them the chief jewel of each week, and not only set aside occasions of pleasure, but even resisted the calls of business, that they might enjoy them uninterrupted. It chanced on one of these rambles that their way led them down a by-street in a busy quarter of London. The street was small and what is called quiet, but it drove a thriving trade on the weekdays. The inhabitants were all doing well, it seemed, and all emulously hoping to do better still, and laying out the surplus of their grains and coquetry, so that the shop front stood along that thoroughfare with an air of invitation like rows of smiling saleswomen. Even on Sunday, when it veiled its more florid charms, and lay comparatively empty of passage, the street shone out in contrast to its dingy neighborhood, like a fire in a forest. And with its freshly painted shutters, well-polished brasses, and general cleanliness and gaiety of note, instantly caught and pleased the eye of the passenger. Two doors from one corner, on the left hand going east, the line was broken by the entry of a court. And just at that point, a certain sinister block of building thrust forward its gable on the street. It was two stories high. It showed no window, nothing but a door on the lower story, and a blind forehead of discolored wall on the upper, and bore in every feature the marks of prolonged and sordid negligence. The door, which was equipped with neither bell nor knocker, was blistered and disdained. Tramps slouched into the recess and struck matches on the panels. Children kept shots upon these steps, 
the schoolboy had tried his knife on the moldings, and for close on a generation, no one had appeared to drive away these random visitors or to repair their ravages. Mr. Romfield and the lawyer were on the other side of the by street, but when they came abreast of the entry, the former lifted up his cane and pointed. Did you ever unlock that door? he asked, and when his companion had replied in the affirmative, it is connected in my mind, added he, with a very odd story. Indeed, said Mr. Ederson, with a slight change of voice, and what was that? Well, it was this way, returned Mr. Armfield. I was coming home from some place at the end of the world about three o'clock of a black winter morning, and my way lay through a part of town where there was literally nothing to be seen but lamps, street after street, and all the folks asleep, street after street, all lighted up as if for a procession, and all as empty as a church, till at last I got into that state of mind when a man listens and listens and begins to long for the sight of a policeman. All at once I saw two figures, one a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, and the other, a girl of maybe eight or ten, who was running as hard as she was able down a cross street. Well, sir, the two ran into one another, naturally enough, at the corner, and then came the horrible part of the thing, for the man trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. It sounds nothing to hear, but it was hellish to see. It wasn't like a man. It was like some damn juggernaut. I gave a few halloa, took to my heels, collared my gentleman, and brought him back to where there was already quite a group about the screaming child. He was perfectly cool and made no resistance, but gave me one look so ugly that it brought out the sweat on me like running. The people who it turned out were the girl's own family, and pretty soon the doctor for whom she had been sent put in his appearance. Well, the child was not much the worse, more frightened, according to the sawbones, and there you might have supposed would be an end to it. But there was one curious circumstance. I had taken a loathing to my gentleman at first sight. So had the child's family, which was only natural. But the doctor's case was what struck me. He was the usual cut and dry apothecary, of no particular age and color, with a strong Edinburgh accent and about as emotional as a bagpipe. Well, sir, he was like the rest of us. Every time he looked at my prisoner, I saw that Sawbones turned sick and white with desire to kill him. I knew what was in his mind, just as he knew what was in mine, and killing being out of the question, we did the next day. We told the man we could and would make such a scandal out of this as should make his name stink from one end of London to the other. If he had any friends or any credits, we, under, we undertook that he should lose them. And all the time, as we were pitching it in Red Hot, we were keeping the women off him as best we could, for they were as wild as harpies. I never saw a circle of such hateful faces. And there was a man in the middle with kind of black, sneering coolness, frightened too. I could see that. But carrying it off, sir, really like Satan. If you choose to make capital out of this accident, said he, I'm naturally helpless. No gentleman but wishes to avoid a scene, says he. Name your figure. Well, we screwed him up to a hundred pounds 
for the Todd's family. He would have clearly liked to stick out, but there was something about the lot of us that met mischief, and at last he struck. The next thing was to get the money, and where do you think he carried us but to that place with the door? With that, a key went in and presently came back with a matter of ten pounds in gold and a cheque for the balance on coots, drawn payable to bearer, and signed with a name that I can't mention. There is one of the points in my story, but it was a name, at least very well known, and often printed, that the figure was this, but the signature was good for more than that if it was only genuine. I took the liberty of pointing out to my gentleman that the whole business looked apocryphal and that a man does not, in real life, walk into a cellar door at four in the morning and come out with another man's check for close upon a hundred pounds. But he was quite easy and sneering. Set your mind at rest, says he. I'll stay with you till the bank's open and cash the check yourself. So we all set off, the doctor and the child's father and our friend and myself, and passed the rest of the night in my chamber. And next day, when we had, we had breakfasted, went in a body to the bank. I gave him the check myself and said I had every reason to believe it was a forgery. Not a bit of it. The check was genuine. Tut, tut, said Mr. Ederson. I see you feel as I do, said Mr. Onfield. Yes, it's a bad story. For my man was a fellow with it that nobody could could have to do with. A really damnable man. And the person that drew the check is the very tank of the proprieties, celebrates it too. And what makes it worse? One of your fellows who do what they call good. Blackmail, I suppose. An honest man paying through the nose for some of the capers of his youth. Blackmail house is what I call the place with the door in consequence. Though even that, you know, is far from explaining all he added, and with the words fell into a vein of musing. From this, he was recalled by Mr. Ederson, asking rather suddenly, I don't know if the drawer of the check lives there. A likely place, isn't it? returned Mr. Onfield. But I happen to have noticed his address. He lives in this, he lives in some square or other. And he never asked about the place with the door, said Mr. Ederson. No, sir, I had a delicacy, was the reply. I feel very strongly about putting questions. It partakes too much of the style of the day of judgment. You start a question and it's like starting a stone. You sit quietly on the top of the hill and away the stone goes, starting others. And presently, some bland old bird, the last you would have thought of, is knocked on the head in his own back garden and the family has to change the name. No, sir, I make it a rule of mine. The more it looks like queer street, the less I ask. A very good rule, too, said the lawyer. But I've studied the place for myself, continued Mr. Onfield. It seems scarcely a house. There's no other door, and nobody goes in or out of that one. But once in a great while, the gentleman of my, of my adventure, there are three windows looking out in the court on the first floor, none below. The windows are always shut with their clean. And then there's a chimney, which is generally smoky, so somebody must live there. And yet, it's not so sure. So sure. So the buildings are so packed together about the court that it's hard to say where one ends and another begins. The pair walked on again for a while in silence. And then, Onfield said, Mr. Ederson, that's a good rule of yours. Yes, I think it, I think it is. 
returned on field. But for all that, continued the lawyer, there's one point I want to ask. I want to ask the name of that man who walked over the child. Well, said Mr. Onfield, I, I can't say what harm it would do. It was a man of the name of Hyde. Hmm, said Mr. Ederson. What sort of a man is he to see? He's not easy to describe. There's something wrong with his appearance. Something displeasing. Something downright detestable. I never saw a man I so disliked, yet I scarcely know why. He must be deformed somewhere. He gives a strong feeling of deformity, although I couldn't specify the point. He's an extraordinary-looking man, and yet I really can name nothing out of the way. No, sir, I can make no harm of it. I can't describe him, and it's not want of memory, for I declare I can see him this moment. Mr. Ederson again walked some way in silence, and obviously under a weight of consideration. You are sure he is the key? he inquired at last. My dear sir, began Onfield, surprised out of himself. Yes, I know, said Ederson. I know it must seem strange, but the fact is, if I do not ask you the name of the other party, it is because I know it already. You see, Richard, your tale has gone home. If you if you've been inexact in any point, you had better correct it. I think you might have warned me, returned the other, with a touch of sullenness. But I have been pedantically exact, as you call it. The fellow had a key, and what's more, he has it still. I saw him use it not a week ago. Mr. Utterson sighed deeply, but said never a word, and the young man presently resumed. Here's another lesson to say nothing, said he. I am ashamed of my long tongue. Let us make a bargain, never to refer to this again. With all my heart, said the lawyer. I shake hands on that, Richard. The end of chapter one of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written by Robert Louis Stevenson, recorded by Sandra London. Oh.
baby. Why don't we sing a song to help pass the time? Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Merrily, 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 life is down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Hello, all you sexy naked girls radio listeners. Have yourself a naked day and make it a naughty night with me, Sandra London, on Playtime with Sandra every Sunday night, 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 10 p.m. Central, 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.